In today's episode, we want to let you know that our conversation touches upon the topic of suicide. We understand that this can be a difficult and sensitive subject for many listeners. While we strive to approach this topic with sensitivity and empathy, we want to remind you that discussions about suicide may be triggering for some individuals. If you find yourself feeling distressed or even overwhelmed during our conversation, we encourage you to prioritize your mental health and take a break as needed. It's essential to recognize that suicidal thoughts and feelings are serious and require professional support. If you or someone you know is struggling, please reach out to a trusted friend, family member, or mental health professional. You are not alone, and there are people who care about you and want to help. Here are some resources you can contact for support. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Crisis Text Line. Just text HELLO to 741-741. Additionally, please remember that the conversations in this episode are for informational purposes only and should not substitute professional advice or treatment. If you're struggling, seeking support from qualified professionals is crucial. Thank you for joining us in this important conversation. Let's continue to support and uplift one another during difficult times. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Alexander Schmieding and you're listening to From Vision to Creation, a podcast that dives deep into the minds of visionaries who pursued their passions and made their visions a reality. On each episode, we will have conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, industry leaders, and business owners, and we'll explore the mindset that fueled their desire to take their dreams from vision to creation. This podcast is brought to you by Proper Placement, a full-service marketing agency that can help promote your business through social media marketing, paid advertising, email marketing, and more. Find out how we can help grow your business at properplacement.com. At Proper Placement, we don't have clients. We have partners. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another inspiring episode of From Vision to Creation. Today we have the immense pleasure of hosting a true luminary in the world of fashion and style, Wayne Scott Lucas. With a career spanning over 38 years, Wayne has not only been a top celebrity fashion stylist, but a creative force shaping the looks of some of the most iconic figures in the world. You may recognize him as the co-host and stylist of the hit TLC fashion intervention show, What Not to Wear where his expert touch transformed not just wardrobes, but lives. Wayne's styling prowess extends beyond the television screen. His work has graced the pages of renowned magazines such as Vogue, Elle, Arena, Marie Claire, Us Weekly, People, W, Vibe, Premiere, Entertainment Weekly, Italian and British Vogue, and Harper's Bazaar, among others. As a costume designer and visual consultant, Wayne's collaborations read like a roll call of legends. From Tina Turner's Wildest Dreams World Tour to working closely with Johnny Versace on Tina's 24-7 World Tour, Wayne's vision has left an unfading mark. He crafted special opening costumes for Janet Jackson's All of You World Tour and her infamous wardrobe malfunction costume at the 2004 Super Bowl. Justin Timberlake and his dancers were also under Wayne's stylish influence during Justin's Justified World Tour. His creative genius has been immortalized in the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Rock Style exhibit, 
where three of his designs were hailed as the best costumes in rock and roll history, a testament to his enduring impact on the industry. Beyond the glitz and glamour, Wayne Scott Lucas is a multifaceted individual, social media expert, brand consultant, and accomplished equestrian. Known for his kind spirit, Wayne's likability and direct communication style have made him a sought-after consultant, not only for established celebrities, but also for young designers and on-air personalities. Join us as we unravel the incredible journey of Wayne Scott Lucas, exploring the intersection of vision and creation in the ever-evolving world of fashion and beyond. Well, Wayne, thank you so much for being here. I've been so excited for this conversation. I really appreciate you coming out here. Tell them how far I came. Wayne just traveled for two hours to do this interview, which <laughs> I am just like blown away by. I cannot in a believe Honda it. Accord, I drove myself, didn't take a driver. And the town right before this, I thought I was going to be murdered like I was making a snuff film. There were people <laughs> walking on the side of the road with no streetlights, carrying hefty garbage bags with all their clothes. And I'm like, what? Oh where am God. I? What is this? Like, what is happening here? Who are these people? Where am I going? Oh, that's so hysterical. Yeah, I was, uh, when I got like off the highway, I'm thinking, I know upstate, but like, I'm really upstate. Like I'm in like the boondocks and it's like, and then it got dark because there's no um, streetlights. Oh yeah, that's true. So it's just me and a cow and a man with a garbage bag on the side of the road. And then I look down at the, at the directions and I look up and I almost hit somebody else walking across. It's like, what is this? It was like the walking dead up here. Well, I appreciate you risking your it's life the walking to be dead. here. Yeah, right? it's the walking dead. This could be like a zombie house, couldn't it? Yeah, We're in a big old farmhouse, really beautiful with big giant wood plank floors, a picture of a cow on the wall and people outside with garbage bags with all their belongings. (laughs) It's so everything. Oh my gosh, that's hysterical. I I appreciate you coming out here and and I apologize for the adrenaline rush. (laughs) No, I got scared. I was like, what the heck? So Wayne, you started your career as a child model in TV commercials. How did your early experiences in the industry shape your passion for fashion and styling? It's so funny. When I was little, my mother, my pediatrician, my doctor said to my mother, just let him sit in a corner and do whatever he wants. She goes, just keep giving him spaces to create, 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 create. And my mom said she spent most of my life young just cleaning up after me. I'd make puppets here and then I would make a dress over here for a doll. And then I would make a log cabin and then I would go make a racetrack for my brother. And she said, I would just spend the day cleaning up after you. And my kindergarten teacher said to my mother, I got skipped in kindergarten to first grade for like math and reading. I was extremely smart for kindergarten, whatever that means. (laughs) And I found myself getting bored at six years old and five years old. And the teacher said, I just want to take Wayne and sit him in the corner and just teach him. I just want to sit him in the corner and teach him and teach him and teach him. She goes, he just absorbs. And I can't give him enough information in kindergarten that fills his brain so that he's not bored in the class. So they started to skip me. I'd leave the class for math and science and I'd learn those things. And then we started modeling at a young age at, um, I guess, six or seven. My mom's friend her kids were modeling and doing commercials and somebody said, we should do it. So me and my brother went to a go-see at FC Management and they signed both of us right away. And every day after school, we would come home from school, three o'clock, get on the bus. My mother would take her newborn baby on her hip. 
my brother Todd and me, and we'd get on the bus and go to New York City for go-sees. And I landed a huge Maxwell House coffee commercial with uh, the Wicked Witch of the West, Margaret Hamilton from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and she did these seven Maxwell House coffee commercials and they were run during Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show. They were top A-list commercials, which was the biggest money you could get as a child model. And I did the first Maxwell House coffee commercial and the management said, this kid's gonna be a star, we have to keep him working. But I didn't wanna leave my friends after school anymore. So my last audition was a cream of wheat, you know, in the bowl, or it was Lipton soup, like the bowl would, it glow, the kid would eat his breakfast and then he would walk in the bowl, would glow all over his head, keeping him safe all day. And it was a huge commercial and it was like Miss America was in it and this actor. And I had to play the kid. So I went for the audition and I was sitting there and I was so angry that I had to leave my friends in New Jersey and go to the city that I sat <laughs> with my arms folded. I was like the typical, typical like kid TV brat all of a sudden. <laughs> and they were going, come on, Wayne, look at that football game. Look at those guys. We were sitting in an office in New York and I'm like this, I don't see any football game. I don't see any football. I, I don't, I don't see. I was such a rotten brat. And I always think back, like those two actors were acting so great because they wanted to get that commercial. And I was the rot, most rotten kid you could have imagined. And that day, my mother said, that's it. We're not doing this anymore. Did, did you get the, not get the commercial? No, because I was supposed to be happy. And I just was, <laughs> I was the worst. And, the, and they called the management and they said, he can come back in and do it again. And I'm like, I'm not doing it. And I was a kid then. And I don't know what would have happened if I had kept doing commercials. Uh, my mother got very concerned because the business, the industry, gay in the industry was was kind of a pariah at that point. Mm. And I was too young. And I guess in a way, and this is no ego, but too pretty. And she said, I had a friend and I'm not gonna let you go on these go sees anymore you're, until you're 18 years old. And so my mother stopped it. She must have seen something going mm -hmm. on with men and the business that she wouldn't let me do it anymore. I don't know if it was a good or bad thing. I TV kept pulling me back because eventually I did more TV and then I had a TV show called What Not to Wear and I was the host and got a lot of attention for that and then I did, you know, I've been then I got QVC and HSN and I've sold clothes on TV and I everybody keeps wanting to put me in front of the camera. And what I can tell you is I love looking at the camera and connecting to people that I can't see and saying things that are gonna make the connection happen. I love doing it, but I don't have the ego for it because I'm so good at behind the scenes. I love producing. I love um, dressing people and making them look great. I love uh, showing people, you know, Meryl Streep was a size 16 and she was doing a show called Dancing at Lunessa and they hired me. And I had to make her look like she was a size six. And I just love when you get celebrities naked <laughs> and these women are in front of you with all the things they don't like about themselves. They hate their hips, they hate their breasts. They, they may like one thing, but you get all their clothes off. And then all of a sudden, talk about a raw canvas. They kind of fall apart. I don't think many celebrity women I know have stood up and except for like a Pam Anderson or some of the supermodels have stood up and said, look at me naked, I look great. So the big celebrities, the A-listers that have real bodies, you really kind of rip them apart by undressing them and then you actually put them back together. And that process of making them fall in love with themselves, how you dress them, how you give them a Spanx back then or 
the little tricks that you can do and, and the way you speak to them. You know, I learned how to make people feel valuable with who they were as they were at the moment. And I don't know where it came from, but it came easy. So the behind the scenes thing for me is really the best part. And everybody still, I got asked to do Home Shopping Network again, and they want me on TV again. And, you know, it's at this point, it's like people wanted me to have a show. They were... I was supposed to do Queer Eye for the Straight Girl and um, after Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And back then, Queer Eye for anything, you had to really, and even Carson Kressley just said this, you really had to consider if you wanted to be known as queer on TV. These kids nowadays think it's no big deal, but it was a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I even grew up in a time where it wasn't okay to yeah. be gay yeah. when I was when I was in middle school, high yeah. school. So, Well, you know, it's still not to many people. Yeah. So- to convince ourselves that we're safe in this world and that it is okay to piece people in my family, it's not okay. And I went to audition for that and I got out there and they paid you a dollar for the audition. And they said, I had left what not to wear. And then it was Queer Eye for the Straight Girl. And they said, we're gonna give you a dollar and that dollar gives us the rights to use the video of your audition for the future show. And I thought, if I don't get this show, I don't want them showing me like that I failed and I missed the opportunity. So I walked out. I, I was nice. I said, I'm not going to do this. They go, oh, you flew. I flew all the way to LA. It was Janet Jackson's birthday. She invited me to her party. And I thought, I'll go to the audition. I'll go to her party. Because I back then, I didn't have enough money to stay too many days in LA. I didn't know. And I wasn't rich. And I, my father had just died of cancer. So I was kind of struggling to get these auditions. And I flew out there. I stayed at Shutters, which was very expensive. I stayed for one afternoon to the night. And then I left before Janet's party and she was so furious with me. And it wasn't even worth it because I'd never did the audition. And the show got on the air, it got canceled. But, you know, it seems like God keeps putting me in places I'm supposed to be in. And I don't know why I'm being put in those places, but I would tell anybody listening, the most important thing, I tell my assistants this years ago and you could say this, show up, shut up, and do good work. <laughs> if you constantly do that, when you shut up, you learn. When you show up, people see that you can actually be there for the project and you do the best work you can do. And you know what? If you're not the best stylist, you may be the best ironer. You may be the best person that can cater or call assistance or wrangle talent. Everybody has a specific talent. So, you know, you can't pigeonhole yourself to say, I'm going to be the most famous stylist. You may be the most famous lots of things on film and television. You may be the most famous, you may be the kindest person on the set. And I would pay someone just to come on the set and be kind because some of the days are really bad. So that was kind of the process of the TV stuff. And at this point, I could have a talk show or a TV show. I was going to do a podcast like this. And then someone said, oh, there's no money in podcasts. Don't do the." I didn't look for money. It was just telling the stories because I'm in the middle of writing a memoir of all the years. It started out as a horrific tell-all and I was ripping everybody to shreds because having dressed the biggest people in the industry and having been abused and lauded and treated well, by the biggest people that people worship in this business, I've seen it all. And everything I say in my book, everything you see on Entertainment Tonight, on Inside Edition, hi, Deborah Norville, my friend, everything you see on these shows and extra, I know the backstory. Because from 1989, 
until 2022, I was in all those rooms. And I was in the rooms with Whitney Houston. I was in the rooms with so many that have passed away and died on us, Kevin Aquan, the makeup artist. And I know what really went on. And what's come to fruition for me now is thinking, I thought that being loyal to celebrities was some badge of honor. I thought not telling their secrets was a badge of honor until the Super Bowl happened and the wardrobe malfunction affected my life so shockingly horrifically. And in protecting a celebrity who I love, whom I love, Janet Jackson, I actually, it was actually the last time that I forgot to care for myself first. And the fallout was she's going on doing her thing and I'm going on doing my thing. But my book agent said, what good is a 17-year-old lie? Like, it's a 17-year-old lie. You're still not supposed to talk about something. And for what reason? And who are you protecting? And it's your story. You know, it's your story to tell. And I still haven't told it to this day. But um, I guess there's one good thing that I'm proud of that I'm loyal but then the other side of that is for what? What's the loyalty? You know, they're not booking me right now to go on the world tours. They're not saying, thank you for being loyal. Here's, you know, a million dollars. We really appreciate you. You know, they just expect that of you. And um, my therapist once said, uh, celebrity is one of the worst businesses you can work in. The people are horrific across the board. And she's, and I always say, I was too sensitive and too unexperienced to choose the business I chose to be in this business. It's a horrific business. Um, And now at this point, when you've killed all the demons in the business and you've lived all the stories and you can come back and say, oh, you want me to consult with you on this movie? Okay, I'll consult with you. Give me, you know, $100,000 and I'll sit there and tell you, make the sky blue and change her dress to yellow. That works for me. But to have to go and be on the wardrobe, I always felt like I can't be on a set for six months to a year because I'll fight. The old me would have fought. There would have been an ego thing, but now it's just like, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, my ego, when you don't have self-respect and self-esteem, which most of us don't, and until you learn how to have it, those things get in the way. And I lost work because of it, because I, I, I would be mouthier, I would fight back. And the funny thing was, I spent a lot of time thinking I was fighting for the celebrity. If the client said, put Cindy Crawford in that red dress, I'm like, she doesn't want to wear the red dress. And she goes, they go, well, we want her in the red dress. And I said, she's not going to wear it. They would go back and report to my agent that I was belligerent when the truth was in the dressing room, Cindy would say, I don't care, Wayne, tell him I'm not wearing it. And then I would protect her, but in protecting her, I wasn't protecting myself. And that's been the process. And you know, I think that that happens in in a lot of industries, I feel like in the celebrity world, it's probably on steroids, but I think I'm glad you're bringing this up because when you are protecting your clients or someone you're working with, you're right. You do have to protect yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Well, think of all the people. I tell people all the time this, they say, I can't go home. My father is dying, but I can't go home because we have a big project due at BBDNO and it's an advertising. And if I go, your company will, everybody listening, there is not one corporate company out there that won't fire you tomorrow if they decide you're not worthy, if they decide they don't have the money. They don't 
care about you. So it's very important that you care about yourself because that CEO that you think cares about you cares about himself more than he cares about you. You can call in, you can say that I'm wrong, but I'm right. So take care of yourself, protect yourself, find your truth, speak your truth, and you know, show up, shut up, and do good work. And if people don't find that you are valuable, then you go find someplace else. Deborah Cox taught me this and I'll never forget it. I was making a choice years ago, such a childish choice about career, and I was asking her a question. And Deborah Cox said, Wayne, I have one answer to that. You know Deborah Cox, the singer. And you know, she's done Aida and Broadway, and she's never crossed over. And She's crossed over, but not like Clive Davis wanted to make her the new Whitney when Whitney was dying. And then they took advantage of her and they kept her around, but they never really pushed her. And we were talking at a Japanese restaurant one night and I I said, Deborah, I don't know what to do. And Deborah said these words and I never forget it. And I still say it. She said, Wayne, the way to make these decisions are go to where the love is. And I said, what? She said, go to where the love is. Look at both options. Look at the four options. Which one has love? Which one is full of love? Go to where the love is. And I thought that was so good for me because as a child with with crazy family and all kinds of stuff we all go through, I had to learn what love looked like. And I'm not saying you have to love your boss, but you know when there's an option that you can choose, you can see which one is um, more value to you as a human than just your pocketbook. Right. And I'm telling you, if you trust God, Whatever you call your faith and you have faith, the money will come. But your self-esteem and self-worth are so much more valuable if you go to where the love is, when you choose jobs, when you choose relationships, when you choose partners. Even with your own family, if your family of origin treats you bad, go to where the love is. I love that, Wayne. And I've actually never heard that before. And I love this is it. something I'm never going to forget. It moved me. Go Deborah to where Cox, the love is. I still, I just said it to her last week. She was, or two weeks ago, she was doing... um She's doing the Wiz on tour and she's playing Glinda, I think. And I said, she said something about, oh, we're going to Canada, then we're going here and I'm getting really tired, then I wanna go home. And I just wrote on Facebook to her, I said, go to where the love is. And I got like a wink because she remembers. <laughs> and it works with friends, with everybody. And if you don't have it for yourself, you're never gonna find it in other people. So this race to the grave that we're all on, when you start to look and you start to think like, you know, I know this is, I don't know when this is gonna be, when this is airing, but we're, we're coming on four weeks till the holidays. And I look and I thought, I went in the garage at my mom's house and I was gonna put her house together. And I thought, I just put this stuff away, you know, 12 months ago. And 12 months ago, I can remember where my brain was cause it was after the pandemic. And I can remember how tight money was. And I'm thinking, boy, you sure, these, these years are flying by. And if you, if you live in your heart and not in your head, you will start to see, especially young people, you know, 16, 17, when you're getting your careers going, if you start living in your heart, you'll start understanding how fleeting life is and that this crazy headspace where you're running, 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 running makes you think that the years are longer than they are. The faster you work doesn't make the years seem shorter. It makes them seem more full of bullshit. Mm, so well if you just stay peaceful in that brain and that head, you can start to savor the mornings, getting up with a morning prayer or meditation, going to bed the same way. You can savor 
opening your, I do a, I do a meditation by Carolyn Meese, M-Y-S-S, and it's morning meditation, morning energy and evening meditation. And I was never a meditation person. My therapist kept saying, you've got to learn meditation. Um, she said, when I came to her, I was on 12 diet Cokes a day and a banana. Like I was running on sugar. I never stopped talking. I never listened, you know, and I've learned. So she forced me to start meditating and I get up in the morning where you start, where you're sitting on your on a, on wet grass, your first chakra, and you start seeing what happens there. And then you put in front of you people you have to meet for the day and people you want to meet, people you don't want to meet. What does this person need to teach you? Look them in the face, the person you don't want to see. Look in their eyes and ask them, what am I going to learn from you today? And you experience what's going to happen. And then when it happens, you've already worked through all the garbage. So I do that in the morning. I do an evening meditation at night. And I also do one called, um, her name is Bell Ruth Knapperstack. And it's um, Bell Ruth Knapperstack. And it's called, it's a trauma meditation. I think it's 59 minutes. It's on YouTube. And it takes you on a journey into your heart. And you go into your heart and you see all the burning spaces and you go into one and you bring with you like a spirit animal or a, a family member that's passed away and they walk with you and <laughs> you start to heal your heart. And at the end of the meditation, it makes me emotional. Everybody that you loved, that loved you, that has left, lines up in front of you. And you're in your, I'm in my bed doing it every night and my dog walks up and my horse that passed away and each one gives you back a piece of your heart and soul. Oh, I love and that, And you Wayne. put that back in you and then oh, you go to beautiful. bed. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm tearing up. Yeah, yeah that, that is beautiful. It's a beautiful meditation and you play it every night. She said sometimes three or four times a day and it actually heals me in my sleep, if that makes any sense. And she said, do it four or five times a day. You'll take what you need. If you don't need it, it'll take something else. It even changes in your head. And it's the only thing I would say that's calmed me down in a business. It's funny to hear myself talk about this because I really feel like I survived a business you're not supposed to survive in, and I healed in this business. And, I, and you know, doing that before bed, I really do think there is something to that. Mm -hmm. In fact, on one of the podcast episodes of From Vision to Creation, I was speaking to a director named Michael Schramm. Mm -hmm. And he said that every night before he goes to bed for years now, he would he places his attention on what it is that he's trying to achieve or manifest in his life. And he, he believes that that plants a seed in your subconscious yeah. and then directs you into where you're supposed to go. Yeah. So I think that in you setting this intention, I think that you are healing your heart mm -hmm. and you are finding peace. Yeah, because that. I, like everybody else, I can lay in my bed and look at Instagram and and, tic, and Twitter mm -hmm. right before I go to bed, but I can't anymore because I'm finding that I'm taking care of my brother, I'm taking care of my mom who's elderly, and I'm taking care of my business right now and an elderly dog. And I'm thinking, there's no more time to care about the world's problems, meaning that I'm going to get upset about them if I can't fix them. So if I do this meditation, it's like, I learned something after my partner committed suicide, um, 2010, what is it, 24, it'll be 14 years ago, I think in April. I learned that the day he killed himself, my therapist called, my mom had told her that my boyfriend killed himself in my house and I saw it and she called me and we talked and I was catatonic, just wet with tears and cried all day. 
And then she called back in a half an hour. And then she called back in a half an hour. She did a half an hour all day the first day till I fell asleep with her on the phone. It's unheard of. And then she called the next day every hour. It's unreal. She did that for a whole week. Wow. And I could actually look forward to the call from somebody I trusted that would listen and walk me through living, choosing to live after what I saw, the trauma of it. She said, Mrs. Lucas, to my mother, she said, I'm going to call Wayne all this week and I'm going to keep checking in. Just make sure he takes the call. And she saved my life. And but what I learned was one day um, when the calls were getting further apart, I said something and she goes, Wayne, I'm sorry, but you have to learn this. Everybody doesn't grieve the way you grieve. And she said, your friends are done. They're moving on from the suicide, even though you're not. And she said, that's just the way it is. I screamed at her after being so kind to me and I told her off. I said, you don't know what you're talking about and that's not the way this is. And I screamed and I screamed and I hung up. Well, took me a couple days and I stopped and I thought, I did a meditation and I woke up and I went, oh my God, it's not my pain. My therapist had lost a child years ago and I thought when she lost that child that was born and then passed away, that was pain. When my boyfriend hung himself and I saw it, that was pain. They're not different pain. It's universal sadness. And that's when I started to learn that my pain's not bigger than your pain. Your pain's not bigger than my pain. It's universal pain. And then in that, there's universal joy. So we can't judge each other's level of pain, level of sadness. It's just universal. We can be, we can commiserate we can be kind, we can show up because it's universal. And then when there's joy, we can share that the same way. So that's what I've learned in order to survive this business and, and life lately. Uh, things come up with work now. There's something going on right now with work and I'm thinking, I am not, I shouldn't say stupid enough. I am not uneducated enough to allow this to have me fall apart tonight. So I have an unbelievable faith in God that started when I was young, that I had to get away from for a minute, but I can immediately pray. And I, my brother once told me, my brother Sean once said, this is how you pray. He goes, you get on your knees, wherever you are, whatever you can do, first you're humble. And you say, thank you so much for my life, for all I've done. And people don't have to believe this, but it's like a meditation. First, you're humble, then you're grateful, then you're thankful, and then you ask. And then I ask God for what I need. And then people don't like Joel Olstein. I love him because he says, pray big prayers. Yeah. Don't ask for a horse, ask for the farm. Don't ask for you know gas, ask for a new car. And that kind of lets you think big, but what it really lets you do is live in faith mm -hmm. that everything's gonna be all right. And I, I like Joel Osteen too. He's one, when I was going through a hard time, I was listening to him in the morning. Yeah. Um, it was my morning ritual. Uh -huh. And I, people would say, oh, you listen to him. I don't, I don't really care for him. But one thing that he would always say is that all, all that is required of you is a mustard seed size of faith. Of faith. And then God will show up in your life. Faith and I've always loved that. the size of a mustard seed, yeah. Exactly. There was, uh, the best thing I, I, he, he said was, Job was suffering when he was worshiping God. He was suffering. And as he suffered and he got, it got worse and worse and worse. 
And he was at the bottom of the, of the rung and he, he couldn't survive, but he kept praising God. And this was my story of faith. And one thing that was said that moved me was, and I still say this without being religious, um, he was all the way down in the trenches. He had lost everything, family, kids, burned, boils, life falling apart. And his words were this. He said this about God. He said, he anointeth my head with oil, my cup runneth over. And he said it while he was suffering. Mm -hmm. And what I learned in that is you pray when you're in the pit. You don't pray when you're at the top of the mountain. You praise God. You praise the universe, whatever you call it. You praise in the pit because that's the faith that you know that this is just temporary. Right. So while you're suffering, I do it sometimes. I go, God, I don't, I, I'm here, but thank you for what I know what's coming. You're going to take care of me and we're going to find the way. And who can I help with this story or how can this change? But praise in the pit. Praise in the pit. And praising yeah. in the pits shows that you have faith that you're going you're gonna to survive. And if you don't want to call it God, I mean, I wish you would, but if you don't want to call it God, call it whatever you want, but praise in the pits because you're going to come out of this. We all come out of this. whether, And it may not be your dream, but it'll be something you never expected. One of the people I listened to, Carolyn Meese again said, who are you to judge another's journey? And then she said, who are you to judge your own? Your journey has a plan. You can't shift that plan. You can show up. Right, and just and, and, and just keep moving forward, yeah. no any matter way, what's happening. Any way you question it, you're judging the journey that God or the world set up for you. You can't judge your journey. Don't judge someone else's, don't judge your own. But praising in the pit is my favorite thing, because I can just imagine being in a mud pit trying to climb out, but being like, thank you, God. I don't know why I'm here, but we're going to do this together. And that changes Oh, I'm drowning. It's like being in quicksand. If you're in quicksand and you stay still, you don't drown. But if you struggle, so, you know, stay still. Stay still to know that I'm God. And you know, Wayne, only having met you 40 minutes ago, I'm not at all surprised that you made it in the way that you did, working with some of the biggest names in the world in the entertainment industry, because you re it's very obvious that you've done a lot of work on yourself. And when I met you just a few, you know, 40 minutes ago, I felt like I had already known you for oh, a long I love time. That. I did. I really Maybe did. Maybe that's a good quality, right? To have. It, it is. And that's why when you were saying that people want to put you in front of the camera and they're always calling you back, it, you do have that very inviting spirit. And oh, that's you, good. And you can, and I feel very, I felt very connected to you just meeting you in within a few minutes. Oh, so. that's so good. Thank you. I just feel like when I met Justin Timberlake the first time, and I thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. I walked in the room and I was talking to my friend, Marty who got me the job on the left and Justin was on the right on the couch and I was trying to be aloof, like I didn't care. And I walked in and I'm talking to Marty and he goes, <laughs> well, there's Justin. And I turned around and I looked and Justin, you know, I know he's suffering now with all he's going through, but man, oh man, you know why someone's a star. He has that star quality that you just go like, whoa, you don't know what it is. I, I was at the White House um, for my friends, Sean Maloney. Uh, was retiring from working. He worked for Bill Clinton and he worked for Obama. When he was leaving Bill Clinton as a chief deputy staff secretary, Clinton came in and gave a speech. And after you could walk up and shake his hand. And again, I'm not starstruck. I walked up to Clinton and it's like, you get pushed back against the wall with the energy. And I can really tell you, there are people that have that star quality and those two people had it. So if I have anything near that, 
that's a good thing. And I try to do it without ego now and um, share it because, you know, we all have a story and the story kind of shifts. If I share my story, it shifts your story. And then you share that story. It's two people sharing. And then we can kind of all carry each other home, you know, walk each other home in this planet, right? Oh, I love that, Wayne. I mean, I can talk fabulous about celebrities, but that's, you know, that you can read about that with me. It's, <laughs> all, it's everywhere. I can't hide anything that I've done, you know? And what was your first big breakthrough in your career? How did you get started working with celebrities? The hardest thing for me was growing up a born-again Christian, which, as you can see, has saved my life. I'm 50, what am I, 58 years old. I survived AIDS. I survived all the things. I came out in New York City. I didn't come out. I moved into New York City in 1980. Everybody was dying. You would get diagnosed and you would be dead in two weeks. This is right before, I mean, AZT was around. I mean, don't fact check me, but this is right before everybody was getting it and taking AZT, which killed a lot of people as much as it saved people. But I came into the city and my moral structure growing up was no drinking, no drugs, no sex before marriage. That's what I was taught. So I treated women like they were these goddesses, which maybe is why I do this for a living and I take care of them now and I kind of worship them. I felt that women were untouchable and you had to really respect and honor them. And um, because of that, when I came to the city and there were men and there was an opportunity to fool around or to have sex, I didn't because God said, no drinking, no drugs, no sex before marriage. I am 100% clean. I don't drink. I never did. I mean, I've had champagne once in a while. I tried pot once at 34 with my friend David. I never did it again. It was a pot brownie. And then I, I, some guy gave him and we laughed and that was it. And uh, no Coke, never tried all that stuff. I don't know how I did that and survived this business. And no sex before marriage. I felt that I was, I needed to be in love with someone to sleep with them. And then sex never became my driving force in New York City. So that stuff kept me alive. So back to why that matters is my mother was teaching two Bible studies and one was with this lady, um, I don't know if it was Helen Clark, what her name was, but she had a son named Greg Clark. So I'm, I'm, I'm re-outing him. And they were trying to, we went to born again, we went to public school. Then I went to born again Christian school where I had to have my hair cut over my ears and wear these little outfits every day. Girls' skirts couldn't be six inches longer than their knee when they knelt down on the floor with a ruler. It was really like bad. And um, chapel on Thursdays, Bible study on Tuesdays, prayer meeting on Wednesdays, Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday night church. I don't think people know that about me. But I was choosing a college and I went back to public school in ninth grade, which was very difficult because private school, we were very protected. And then public school was was rough. I didn't have any friends the first year because I all my friends from elementary school that I knew had moved on and made new friends. So I came with this short haircut. I was wearing a Mr. Bill t-shirt because Mr. Bill was the cool thing on Saturday Night Live at that point. And I wore Lee jeans. They were the hot jeans. But I only had one Mr. Bill t-shirt and two pair of Lee jeans. So I wore them every day in ninth grade to try to fit in. And um, my mom had cancer in 79 and I was a freshman and they said she was gonna die. The, the, the priest came in and said she was gonna die. So my mom was unavailable. My dad was Ukrainian, you know, construction worker. You know, his family was right off the boat. So he wasn't emotional. So I was a young boy, 14 years old in a new school with no friends. 
And I just kind of looked around and I was like, what am I going to do? And then I saw that there was a marching band and I wanted the marching band traveled. They went to Canada. I'm like, I want to be in the marching band. So I played piano my whole life, but I, I had to play an instrument. So I joined summer music school. I don't know how I did it. I got a trombone and it was me six foot. I was six, I'm six foot four now, but I was six foot two. It was me six foot two in a room with all five and six year olds learning how to play instruments. So there I was six foot two with all these toddlers learning how to play the trombone. And I learned in a summer and I finished that summer and I joined the marching band. And in 10th grade, I was in the Bergenfield High School marching band. We traveled to Canada, we traveled around the world. And I went to, I was in the Macy's Day Parade marching. I was playing French horn at that point. I taught myself French horn. So I was playing trumpet, French horn, and trombone. And um, I loved marching in the marching band. And we, we, we traveled, we did everything. And then there was choir. And I started singing in choir and I joined all state, all county. We even made an album. I mean, and it got to the point that I had to, also, every summer my whole life, I went to summer art school. And I was always an artist. I won awards my whole life, painting, drawing. It's kind of what I really do more than all this other stuff. And um, the fight was, is the teachers were saying, you should go to music school and you should go to then art school. And they were fighting both the, uh, the groups, band and music. And I chose, I chose art, and, um, but I spent my high school years doing music and art. So when it came time to go to college, we were choosing colleges and I wanted FIT because I loved fashion and I'd been sketching clothes my whole life and I chose FIT and my parents set over my dead body. <laughs> and my mother was talking to her Bible study teacher whose son was an artist and they decided there were too many gay people at FIT and faggots was the word. And I couldn't go to school with gay people. That wasn't going to happen. So people that think that I have this big ego, that I think I'm fabulous and that my Instagram is blah, blah. I, 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 I suffered the gay conversion stuff. Kids, I, did, I went through it. So I was told no, that, and we, ha we didn't have money for college, but my grandmother and grandfather had passed away and they sold the house next door. And that gave my mother a small chunk of money. A couple of years before my brother Todd, who's extremely smart, wanted to go to college and there wasn't money. So he joined the military thinking that they would give him education. What did he learn? Chemical warfare. I mean, it was so disappointing because he really should have been in college, Todd. He ended up getting out, going to college, becoming an English professor and doing great. But and also a preacher. He preaches at his church and he plays instruments and the whole thing. And um, my parents chose my college. And I think it, my mother had enough money that I could go to college, but they chose, Mrs. Clark said, well, you should go. He should go to Pratt Institute, which is a huge school. It's like, you can't get in. And I got into Cooper Union, apparently. I had to take the home test. I don't know if I finally passed it, but Cooper Union was the best school to go to. It was free. And then I tried out for Pratt. I got into Pratt and um, I didn't know what graphic design was, but the Pratt that I went to only offered graphic design and illustration. So I chose graphic design. I don't know, you know, having parents that never went to college, no one advised me. So I went to Pratt because Greg went to Pratt and there were no gay people in Pratt apparently because only gay people do fashion. They don't do graphic <laughs> design. So I did my time at Pratt and... Um, while I was at Pratt, I, you know, 
my mom was rough. She, she really didn't like me becoming a New Yorker. In high school, when I was in high school, there were these art field trips and the teachers would take us to the West Village in Soho and they'd say, see you in five hours. And they would go <laughs> drink and we would just go all over Soho. And my mother says, I used to do that because I knew you liked New York and I wanted you to learn about it. But then when it came time for me to really go to New York, it was a different story. And at one point, I mean, I went to Italy and Greece in 1979, 14 years old. I had a paper out and I saved money on my paper out and I wanted a school trip to Italy and Greece to Europe. What did I know at 14 years old, my first plane ride in my whole life? Wow. And it's not like it is now. Kids get on planes when they're young and I was scared in Europe. I didn't know what I was doing, but I saw, you know, St. Peter's Basilica. And when I landed in Italy, I felt that I was home. I didn't understand that feeling, but now as an adult, it also happened when I landed in Greece. I felt like I was home. And the weird thing about Italy was I could I could figure out the streets like I'd been there before. So that <laughs> was major for me. I always think about that. And um, I got out of Pratt and the girls at Pratt were doing... Um, a couple of companies were doing graphic design. So I got out of college and I was cutting hair on my mother's deck, you know, giving haircuts. I don't know how I, I just started cutting kids hair in high school. So the high school kids would come to my house as a graduate and I would start giving them haircuts and I'd make money cutting hair on the deck in the back. I'd use the garden hose because my mother wouldn't let me use the sink. So I'd bleach their <laughs> hair and permit. And, and I never had a license. I just did it. I, and then I bought all these prom dresses at a thrift store and I started to hand wash them, clean them. And then I found this great store in Hackensack, New Jersey that had beads and like vintage stuff. And I started to hand bead these dresses. I don't know where it came from. And I had all the dresses hanging on a rack in my upstairs bedroom in New Jersey, my childhood bedroom. And I was renting the dresses out for prom night. So these high school girls that I didn't even know would come to my house, they'd rent these dresses, they'd pay me, I would do their hair and makeup and I'd send them out to the prom. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it was 19... I guess it was 1983, 85. What did I know from hair and makeup? I just knew it was cool. And in the 80s, you could kind of have fun. We do asymmetrical things and that stiff stuff, hairspray and do these great. But I guess that was the beginning of my real styling, mm. you know, creating these looks. And none of us even talked about what I was going to become or what this meant. And then a really rich girl from Saddle River, who ended up being horrible, <laughs> she bought, her mother bought one of the gowns. And I, I, I custom custom beaded it with these flat sequins. It was the most beautiful thing you ever saw. And then I took it to be dry clean. And the, the, the lesson is kids, dry clean them before you bead them because all the beads <laughs> melted. So, but I didn't say anything because oh. it all, it all, all the flat sequins turned bent. It, it still worked. But anyway, <laughs> so I got, out of, I got out of Pratt. I was living at home and I was going in and out of the city. And my mom was saying, you've got to be in the house by six o'clock at night. I don't want you hanging out at the city. That's when we eat. And if you don't get here by six, you're not eating. And I didn't come home at six sometimes. And little did she know, two buses, okay, two buses and a train to get to school, two buses and a train home. She wasn't educated in commuting. So I was lucky if I caught that three o'clock bus she wouldn't give me dinner. I'd have to find something in the fridge. And like, it was punishment for being, for breaking out, for becoming an adult. You know, I was wow. getting like, and you know, I don't, I don't slide her for it. She just didn't know, but did, they didn't make it easy to tell you the truth. So in art college, you would go, you would get homework, 
we didn't have enough money to buy supplies, so I'd have to scrimp and have a little bit of food and supplies. There was just not enough to eat in the city and get the art supplies. And then we would, I'd come home on the bus at six and then I'd start at eight and I would work all night till about four, go to bed for two or three hours, get up at six or seven and get back on the bus and do it again. And I did that for my whole college. And it was dumbfounding how I got through, but I did it. And I would say that it was difficult because my parents didn't, you didn't clean your room, things like that. And it was like, clean my room. I'm not even eating and sleeping. You know, it's like, come on. So anyway, I got out of that. I was doing graphic design. I got a job assisting a girl doing flat fashion sketches. I never did them before. She just showed me how to do them. It was, you got, I think you got paid $2.50 a sketch and we could crank out like 200 in a day. So you could make out a lot of money. Now, almost 50 years, 40 years later, I'm doing flat sketches for my own clothing line. So it's amazing how that mattered back then. But I got out and I was doing graphic design and I was working for the Star, the Inquirer, and um, one more guy, oh, WWD, the fashion paper, doing layouts. And back then you didn't do it on computer. You had to do a blue pencil and a red pencil and rulers and exacto blades, and you would actually cut the type, little words, and you'd lay them on the page for the printers. It was amazing what you had to do. Oh, I got another job from that, working in the city, laying out catalogs, Bullocks, Birdines, all these ghetto catalogs years ago photos and pictures and all the words. And she said, we, and that was the closest I'd gotten to fashion, but I was still doing graphics. And she said, Pat Henry needs a fashion assistant. Does anybody want to do it? And I was like, oh my God. And this other girl wanted the job, but I actually was mean. I actually said, I'm better at it. And this is the girl <laughs> that got me the original job. And it was $50 a day. And it was my only way to get near models and get near fashion. So I took the job and the job was... I would have to go get on the bus in New Jersey, the 166 to New York. I'd get on the bus in New Jersey and I would have to get there at five or six o'clock. I would have to sweep the studio. I would have to start ironing all the clothes for the shoot. It'd be a catalog shoot. I'd have to get the catering. I'd have to lay it out. I'd have to have the catering set up. I was like a real, real slave on those jobs, but Pat was fun. And, you know, I would, I'd get there at six o'clock. I'd do all that work. And then we'd have this shoot and I would just be so in awe of the photographers and the photo shoots and touching the clothes. And then the sad part was I'd have to serve the lunch and then clean up the lunch and then sweep up. And then after all that, at the end of the day, I would have to take all the clothes off the models, hang them all back up, start ironing for the next day for three hours and be all alone. They'd think, okay, bye everybody. And there I'd be, kid from New Jersey, ironing clothes, steaming clothes. And one time I went to iron a shirt and I melted, the shirt just melted. It was a really cheap shirt. And I got so berated for that for like two days by the catalog. But, you know, I put up with it because I really wanted this job. And then one day this model, Vanessa Duvet, I'm friends with her son now, which is funny. He's a young guy. He's handsome, sweet. But I said, you know, your mother slapped me once. One day I ran up to her really fast. I was an excited kid and I went to grab her earrings and take them off. They were clip-ons and give her new earrings because you have to rush to get the girls ready. And I grabbed her earrings and she just slapped me across the face, full backhand. And she said, don't ever touch me like that. I was just like 19 years old. I didn't, I thought I was doing the right thing. But anyway, so the dues you pay are that. So <laughs> I say show, show up, shut up, and do good work. I just showed up. 
I showed up every day. And at the end of the day, I'd get home at eight o'clock and I would go to bed and get back up the next day. But I wanted fashion so bad. It was burning in me. I wanted, and I would see these, I was meeting like no one that's listening probably knows these people, but I was meeting, you know, that's where I met Iman. She was a catalog model. And I gave her this outfit. She goes, oh, they always put the blacks and the colors and the animal skins. And she would grab the outfit for me. And I'm thinking, that's Iman. Like I was so impressed. Think of the people I've worked with now, but I was so impressed to meet Iman back then, you know? And Cindy and Paulina Poroskova, when she had old teeth, she used to have little tiny teeth before she got them fixed. Hello, Paulina. And now we're <laughs> friendly, you know, years later. But I met all those girls on those shoots. And then this is the key for people. You said that you visualize. I wanted it so bad that I did whatever it took to get it. And it was a lot of work and it was painful. And my parents didn't understand why I had a degree in college and I was now dressing models and making 50 bucks a day. And um, I started to get recognized. They would bring in outside stylists like a woman named Magdalena Spruden. She was from I guess Russia, or I forget exactly where, Polish. And she came in, she goes, oh, you're very good. Would you like to work with me on other jobs? I'm like, well, yeah. I said, you know what, I'm not doing this. I'm happy to. So then I would get booked $75 and I would go assist her. And it'd be like some cool celebrity or some advertising job. And then there was another job and they said, oh, you know, you're great. Do you do any other work? So my work ethic, my God ethic, my family ethic, my commuting, you know, 20 hours to do this was so strong that I was recognized at a young age as a worker. And then for some reason, because my mom at six years old used to mark a measuring cup and she made us at six years old do our own laundry, which is probably illegal now. <laughs> I would fill up the detergent and I would separate the whites and stuff. And she taught me how to hem my own pants when I was a kid and I could knit. So I could actually quickly hem on these jobs with a needle and thread. So these ladies were like, who is this guy? You know, we need him. So now that I'm a stylist and I've had probably 10 million assistants over the years, I would have grabbed me up and I would have paid me whatever they had to pay me to keep me. But they didn't. They just took advantage back then. But I did it because I wanted it. And I was excited and I was pleased and I was happy. And I went on locations and I was in, in motorhomes and shooting on the street and in Central Park and all those things you see in The Devil Wears Prada in the movies <laughs> was my life. And I was a kid from New Jersey with a father from the Ukraine and a mother from Edgewater, New Jersey, when it was one of the poorest areas to live in. It wasn't fabulous. And I just wanted to make something of myself, partly because there was a weird drive. And then the other part was, if I was famous, gay wouldn't matter, which it always mm. relates back to the gay. If you're a success, then no one's gonna care that you're gay. If you're better, then you're not gonna be the failure that you feel inside. Because many people, the, especially kids nowadays, don't know, I mean, the feelings of, of worthlessness. When I remember sitting, my mother used, when we would have rainstorms, my mom would do indoor picnics where she'd put a blanket out on the floor and we'd have picnics in the house, we'd have dinner. And one night we were on the floor watching TV and Gay Pride came on. And back in the 70s and the 80s, they would show it on TV and my brothers and father would be like, look at those fags, look at those fags. And you would sit there in the, in the house like, oh shit. Because you'd know something about it was related to you. Right. But you didn't dare not fit into your family. So that was interesting, but I... Started working with Magdalena a lot and she was great. And then 
I was on a shoot at Bob Murray's studio and this woman came in and she was wild and crazy. She just had this giant Afro, this giant Yoji Yamamoto designer coat, like a giant cocoon. And she came <laughs> in with these big clodhopper shoes and she's like, hey baby. And she stuck her hands in my, I had long hair then and she ruffled my hair. She goes, who are you? You're cute. And Magdalena said, that's my assistant. Like, don't go near him. <laughs> and Pat, this is, woman's name was Patty Wilson. She just got awarded for the one of the most famous stylists at the CFDA just this year. And she said, oh, you're gonna come work for me, baby. And she took a card out of her pocket. She handed it to me. It was, these, it was a naked slave dressing a rich white woman. And I can't even believe nowadays that that was her call. That was her business card. Wow. And I'm like, wow. I go, okay, great, nice. And then she left and Patty said, I said, who was that? And Magdalena goes, that's Patty Wilson. She's the most famous stylist in New York. She dresses Whitney Houston. She knows everybody. I was like, okay. And in my head, I go, hello, Patty. <laughs> so I called Patty and I started working with Patty. I got a job with Patty. And the first job was Whitney Houston, Where Do Broken Hearts Go? Wow. So there I was on the Whitney Houston video, getting that white goatee off the shoulder top and meeting Whitney Houston, kid from New Jersey. And I thought, this is what I like. And what Magdalena taught me was how to juggle budgets, you know, that kind of really, a, you know, one time I was working so hard, Magdalena said, ooh, I hate writing you these checks. And I'll never forget what it felt like that she didn't pay me for weeks and I was a young broke kid. But then when she had to pay me for all my hard work, she said she hated it. You know, mm. it really bothers me, even thinking about it now. And, um, I love giving my kids checks when they work for me, especially if it's the client's money. I'm more than happy to pay them, you know, because they do good work. And then what I learned from Patty was, Patty taught me to, you bring Jean-Paul Gaultier and Chanel to Maybelline. So if you get hired for a really, like, I should say, low-end, shitty cosmetics company, say it's Maybelline. It, you know, Revlon was considered high-end and then Clay de Poe is like a thousand a bottle and La Mer is up here. But Patty would say, you bring the, sh the same clothes for La Mer and Shiseido that you bring to Maybelline. And then that's why the client's gonna hire you. So Patty was always able to, she lied to a lot of people because Gautier, Chanel, Galliano, Christian Dior, they wouldn't give clothes to the lower end companies, but Patty would always get them. And then these ads were like, wait a minute, that's a Maybelline ad and the girl's wearing Christian Dior. She's wearing a Christian Dior couture gown. So I learned <laughs> that you bring the best stuff every time you show up. And I learned to overstyle. I mean, over, over prep so that you don't, you never fail at work. So, so my, I saw my old assistant on Instagram and I said, Joe, I go, you got one rack. I said, how many shots are you doing? And he wrote back, it's only one picture. And I said, this is a guy <laughs> named, what's Joe, Joe's last name? Joe Dellett. And I go, Joe, listen, I go, I don't care if it's one picture. You need at least 20 different looks in case the sun sets or it starts to rain. And uh, the kid, they don't do it anymore. There's no budgets. They, the kids don't get it. But that's how I got to Patty. And then Patty, I was on a job with Patty and she said, oh, baby, I can't do Jodie Foster. If you, if you style it for Matthew Ralston, I'll give you the credit in Interview Magazine. And I was like, oh my God, Matthew Ralston, Jodie Foster, I'm gonna get credit, I'm gonna be credited. She goes, you can either have money or you can have credit. So I said, I'll take the credit. And I did the whole job for free. 
It says Matthew Ralston, styled by Patty Wilson. I got no money and there was no credit. Oh my gosh. And I got, you get so excited. You'd have to wait months for them to come out. And that's the last day I worked for Patty. I was actually strong enough to go, you know what? I'm not doing this. And remember, I don't know how I did it at, what was I, 20? I mean, 1983, 85, I was taking a seaplane to Fire Island on the weekends with my friends, laying on the beach and flying back. I was taking my assistant money of like 125 a day. And somehow I had enough money to rent a place in New York. We had poor nights. We would get, me and my friend Jerry Corrigan would get uh, 60, 69 cents for a box of pasta. And I think tomato sauce you could get for $1.29 or 89 cents then. And we would have porn nights. We'd watch 90210 <laughs> and we would make pasta and sit and have a big dinner, you know? And that's how we survived in New York City. And I had a, a, a fifth floor walk up and I just did what I could do. And, you know, I'd lose places. I'd have to find a new place. And my parents would never pay for or, or, or sign credit reports. They'd never co-sign for me. So I can look back and say every single thing I did, I did on my own. I never got one penny from my parents back then to survive. So I don't know how I did it. I would have done more if um, I had an influx of cash. Like Isaac Mizrahi had someone, his parents put money into him. And, you know, I think it's a lot easier when you get that first chunk, but I didn't have the first chunk. But still, nonetheless, you know, your work ethic landed you clients like Whitney Houston, Justin Timberlake, Meryl Streep. I mean, really, the list goes on and on. And I can call, I don't call Justin anymore because of the Super Bowl, but I could call any one of them and I could say, Meryl, it's Wayne. And she'd be like, Wayne, Wayne, oh, Wayne. And, you know, <laughs> we haven't seen each other in a long time, but I I left clean with each one, you know? And, and after Patty was Jodie Foster... And then I was doing like little shoots. I was taking a Chevy Chevette in New Jersey and loading it with antique, remember the antique gowns I made, the prom gowns? Yes. I would take all those in a car and I would test on the weekends with these photographers with no money. And I don't know where I even got gas money, but I would, maybe my parents gave me, I don't think they did, but I would test and I would do test shoots. And I have, I have piles of test shoots that I did, anything to be in fashion. So my my parents' God didn't kill my spirit. The God that I fell in love with supported me to get here because they did not want this for me. And isn't it funny that I went to what they called a straight school and I ended <laughs> up being gay, but I ended up also having a moral structure where no one can say I slept around because I didn't, not, not that I'm judging that, but I, I kept myself, that's why I say at 58 to be alive is a big deal nowadays if you live through the eighties, mm. you know, cause no one knew. And Wayne, what do you think is the biggest lesson that you've learned throughout your entire career? One of the main things that really sticks with you. Hmm. There's a couple things. It's not just a one thing. It's that I wish that somebody told me that I was valuable young. I wish that I knew that I didn't have to perform like a prize pig to get love. I wish because then I would have seen myself earlier. I'm 58. I've had, um, you've said it, I'm not saying it, but I've had a, a stupendous career and I'm just getting, makes me cry. And I'm just getting to know myself now. You know, I'm just getting to know myself and to 
know what protection looks like. Um, I wish uh, a good bit of advice is that um, I wish pay close attention to your self-worth and self-value and only take the things, even if you have to eat, only take the things that honor who you want to be 30 years down the road. Only take the things that you know you can look back and say, because I can look back and say cleanly, I'm clean. You know, like there's one assistant that's probably annoyed at me after all these years, but many of them have come back and said, I learned so much in your office. You were tough. You were mean. You know what? 28 years old, making so much money and being in this, the, the demand of celebrity asking you for things and do this and do that. And I was juggling Tina Turner and Janet Jackson and Justin and world tours and my rule, here's a good rule that I learned, one job at a time. I'll take three jobs, but I'm on the set with Janet. I don't go to Janet. My other boss used to go, Janet, Tina, Justin in one day. You know, I want you to have full Wayne. So Janet, you know, keep yourself separate, keep yourself clean and don't do that money chase. The money chase is your biggest mistake because we also, what happened at the pandemic, you end up nowhere. Money, 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 and then you're nowhere. And when the money's gone, you're nowhere. During the pandemic, here's the best part of the story. During the pandemic, we could not work. No celebrity wanted you in their house because pre-mask, nobody would let you in. We were in quarantine. So all of a sudden I couldn't book anything and I could consult, but then nobody was even Zooming till the end of the pandemic. And I was doing closet cleanings with people Zooming on computers. I'm like, get rid of that. Get, And then I went, you know what? I have a degree at Pratt that I hated that I got because of why I got it. But guess what? Watch this. And I designed seven book covers for novels and I designed four album covers. And I sat in my house and I retouched and did Photoshop and I did graphic design and layout. All of a sudden, all the stuff <laughs> that I learned. And the best part of the story is Mrs. Clark, who made me go to that school because of gay people, because her son Greg did that, because she wanted to protect Greg. Greg ended up having two children and a wife and he left them all for a man. Oh my so God. that's the end of that whole Bible story. <laughs> so wherever Greg is right now, he left his wife and his kids for a man. Hi, cheers. <laughs> cheers, Miss Clark. <laughs> Who knew where you go to school has nothing to do with it, Who apparently. Knew where you go to, can you imagine? Can oh, you imagine? God. And yes. my mom hates these stories, and I've had a hard time putting them into this memoir that I'm doing, but I'm putting them in. Yeah. Because it's my life. And my mom's like, don't tell secrets. Even when I talk about it now, it's like, well, she's going to hear it. Because, and you know, I don't, I don't really care anymore. I'm not out to hurt. I'm just out to tell people that are going through this gay conversion therapy, honey, you don't even know. I didn't get the beatings, but it was close. Wow. It was close. You know, it was close to um, being made to feel worthless. So it's amazing that I have a career where I spend my time making people feel worthy and really looking the best they can look. And you know what? I can look back on my work and the work is iconic. And Irving Penn, Richard Avedon, Patrick de Marchelier, Herb Ritz, you know, the biggest photographers in the world and the biggest makeup artists and, and, and hairdressers and Kevin Aquan. And Kevin came in and said, Wayne is great. You know, 
Janet Jackson needs Wayne and Tina needs this. And Kevin just passed me around and Cindy Crawford. I mean, Cindy booked me for eight years on Revlon every single day. So I, you know, Patty Wilson teaching me, it's like, you must kids, you must always remember that you didn't get here by yourself. Even if people were mean on your way up, the ones that helped you, it matters. And, you know, now I would help any kid take a job. And if the kid is cheaper than me and 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 he wants the job, go ahead and take it. You know, I, I'm not rich, but go, ha- go have fun. You know, it's not an easy business. It's not an easy life. But if you visualize in meditation or just in your waking hours what you want to do, you can really make smart decisions about choices you're going to make for your life. What feels right? What gives you pleasure? what you're proud of when you walk away from it. You know, we all have to do jobs. My therapist always teases me. She calls my styling dishwashing because my career has gone so far that she goes, but you know how to wash dishes. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, you'll do anything to make a buck if you have to feed your family or pay the rent. And she said, you'll go back to styling. You'll go back and you'll, you know, my kids last week, I called my assistants, the kids. I was doing something and I was breaking down a shoot in the Hamptons and the client is a friend and they didn't have the budget for assistance. So I was breaking down the racks, I was sweeping the floor, I was washing the dishes and I was cleaning up and I carried the garbage out. And the lady later on said, I, I'm just, it's just such a pleasure to have you on the shoot and see that you're just Wayne Lucas from New Jersey, Wayne Scott Lucas from New Jersey, <laughs> you know? That, and that's so, it's so important to be willing to do anything you can to be helpful in your career. I love that. Well, be helpful and also like, you're never too fabulous. Right. You know, because you do it in private and you're in your own bedroom and you have to throw garbage out, you can do it. So why can't you do it when people are watching? Mm, That's a good point. Why can't you do it when it's gonna affect somebody else? And the key I've learned this is, you said one great lesson, people are always watching. And if you wanna spread God's light or you wanna spread love, or you want to spread, you know, with all that's going on in the world and you want to share joy, you and I can share joy in this room. And then if we go out later, it spreads to other people. You don't have to go change the world. You just have to change yourself. Oh, I love that, Wayne. That's well put. But isn't it the truth if you think about it? And you, you only can say it if you've been on the journey. And Wayne, if you could go back in time and offer your younger self one bit of advice right before embarking on this specific journey that has been your fabulous career in life, what would it be? It's funny. I, what came to me right away was you matter mm, and it's all going to be okay. I mean, I wish I could say, you're going to be Gloria. I just think about what I would say to my younger self. I would say, you matter. I would say, It's funny because I want to say you're talented, but you don't know that when you're that young. But I think letting children know that they matter, you matter and you're heard and you're seen. You know that that I hate that line from um, The Help. You is good, you is kind, you is pretty, blah, blah. But the (laughs) point is you matter. How about this? You matter, I see you and I hear you. I would love someone to have said that to me as a little kid. And if you need me, I'm right here. Right? Yeah. That's really, 
That's and it's not advice. It's just it's the truth because I do a thing with my therapist where you take your inner child out to um and I don't want to get all metaphysical because I'm not like that. But you take your inner child out with you and you sit him on a bench with ice cream and you say, "You sit here on the bench, have your ice cream cone, enjoy the playground." I'm going to go take care of this problem and I'll be back, but you're okay. Because you don't have to take that kid with you on every battle and every mess that goes on. You got to protect your inner self because at the end of the day, it's all you have. And I've watched as an adult when people take me on a, if there's a small fight or there's a difficulty and I see myself um, feeling the pain and getting lost, I actually can pull myself out of being lost where I've learned in therapy to, to, to step back 20, 30 seconds of every situation. And if you step back, you can evaluate before you explode and burst. But it's therapy. After surviving his suicide, I didn't think I was going to be able to ever function again. But now I'm functioning with another level of depth and understanding that when my friend called Damaris the other day and she said, my son's best friend killed himself, what do I do? And you know what? I, my fingers started typing and it's emotional because I knew what to do. I said, go to ASF, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention.org, AFSP.org. When I read that, it told me it wasn't your fault. Suicide is preventable. It happens to many people. Medication can help. And I went, he didn't leave because of me. First step. Second step was listen. Third step. And I knew the steps of how to help. So it's like, what's the lesson in the suicide? The lesson in the suicide was, I'm a better person. And your job, when someone dies on you or your pet dies or someone passes away, I tell people, this is your job. Go and share. Share. Because none of us take time to understand what grief looks like. And there's a, I love this poem called, you can look it up. I have to find it for you. It's called Holding Space for Others. And I've really learned what it means to hold space. And when people were dying of AIDS, I was reading an AIDS caregiver book and it said, very important. It said, sit with people. You have to learn. This is very important lesson. I'll give you the lesson of life you asked me. You need to learn to sit with people in their pain. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to ask about it. You don't have to talk about it. You just need to sit with them in their pain. If you can sit with someone in silence just to be near them until they need you, then you've learned the lesson of this life. Wayne, thank you so much for your time today. This was so much fun and you've almost brought me to tears several Mm -hmm. times. I mean, I just think that you, not only have you had an amazing career, you have such profound insight. That's good. And I think that a lot of people who hear this are going to really take a lot from this conversation. So I really appreciate you driving the two hours to come out and do it's this. It's okay. With me. It's good. There's always a reason, right? That's right. Why you have to show up for these things. That's true. <laughs> but it's good that, but that's the sharing, isn't it? It is. We share like this and then you play it and then 50, 10,000, 100,000 people hear it and then they share it and so on and so on. And then you, that's your job to share your pain, to share your sorrow, to share your joy, and to share experience so that people know that they're not alone on this planet because it's a very lonely place to be, unless we share. Right. Well, thank you so much, Wayne. I really appreciate your time this evening. I'm never coming up here again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Thank you. 
As we conclude this extraordinary episode of From Vision to Creation, we are left in awe of the incredible journey shared by our distinguished guest, Wayne Scott Lucas. For over 38 years, Wayne has not only been a top celebrity fashion stylist, but a true icon who has shaped the looks of some of the most recognized faces in the world. From gracing television screens as the co-host and stylist of What Not to Wear, to styling the likes of Justin Timberlake, Janet Jackson, Cindy Crawford, and many more, Wayne's influence is immeasurable. His work, featured in countless magazines, reflects not only a keen eye for style, but a profound understanding of the art of fashion. As a costume designer and visual consultant, Wayne has worked on world-renowned tours, leaving an unfading mark on the industry. Three of his designs, deemed the best costumes in rock and roll history, have found a prestigious place in the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Rockstyle exhibit, a testament to their timeless allure. Wayne's diverse journey encompasses leadership roles, co-authoring best-selling books, and being featured in acclaimed documentaries. His likability and direct communication style have made him a sought-after consultant for celebrities, young designers, and TV personalities alike. From television to successful ventures on the Home Shopping Network and beyond, Wayne's ability to connect with audiences at every level is truly commendable. His collaboration with renowned directors and photographers has garnered recognition on major networks and streaming platforms, further solidifying his status as a force to be reckoned with. As the go-to social media expert and brand consultant for designers, celebrities, and Fortune 500 companies, Wayne's influence extends far beyond the realms of fashion. His commitment to helping others sell themselves and their brands shines through in every endeavor. Thank you, Wayne Scott Lucas, for gracing us with your presence and sharing the remarkable tapestry of your career. Your journey from Bergenfield to global recognition is nothing short of inspiring. As we conclude this episode, let Wayne Scott Lucas's transformative journey remind us that true creativity knows no bounds and our visions, no matter how bold, have the power to shape not only our own destinies, but the world around us.